Welcome to Utopias Now. You may have noticed in the past few episodes we've been all about business, the economy, jobs, careers, and using business as a tool to make positive change in the world. This is something that both Shashwat and I are quite passionate about and been actively thinking about, given that we are both studying business at university. And within the realm of business, however, there's an area that we've yet to talk about in much detail, and it's something that's been plaguing our minds recently, and uh, that is traditional notions of leadership and what constitutes a good leader. And in spite of our perceptions and conceptions being tainted with accounts of toxic cultures and lack of consideration for employee well-being and general malfeasance within the business world, we wanted to gain more insight into what it actually looks like to work inside a large corporation. So in today's episode, we're excited to tell you that we explored some of these topics with someone who actually works within one of the big four accounting firms and to learn more about how things look like from the inside. We had the opportunity and pleasure to speak with Swet Kun Lai, or Kuhn for short, who's the director of PwC Australia. PricewaterhouseCoopers, or PwC for short, is a multinational professional service network of firms that ranks as the second largest professional service network in the world and is considered one of the big four accounting firms. At PwC, Kuhn started off as an audit manager and then progressed her way through the company to become the director, and she now leads the transformation of PwC's assurance team. Kuhn also provides career mentoring advice to those who are transitioning to leadership roles or have had barriers to their career aspirations. We have been humbled and intrigued to learn from Kuhn that leaders at such companies like PwC have a uniquely different approach to looking at business, leadership, and create positive company cultures within large corporations. And then so in that way, we were able to rethink, reshape, and retell traditional narratives around what corporate culture, leadership, and careers are. We also ran a new experiment with Kuhn, which you'll hear in the podcast or listen, and uh, we explored a wide variety of topics ranging from childhood, nurturing, and also how personal lives and family transfers over to leadership, corporate cultures, and our careers in the professional world. with a new experiment to, to try out today that we'd like to try out and let us know if you're okay with that. So usually we, you know, we just speak on Zoom in one environment and this is quite different from how we function as human beings because as human beings we, uh, we show different parts of ourselves in different environments, right? So maybe if we're sitting in your office, you might show a certain side of you. Maybe if we're sitting in your living room, then maybe another side of you. Maybe if we are thrown into space on a rocket, then there's another side that comes out. So what we thought we could experiment with is by putting ourselves in our heads in different spaces or in different environments or contexts. And you'll see us sort of moving from context to context. So um, as you notice being in that context, just speak based on that context or play with the, the story that we're sort of experimenting with. How does that sound to you? Does that experiment sound something you would be interested in trying out? Absolutely. Um, so Xavier would know this. I'm actually an experimenter by heart and I will go out of my way to actually do this something different. Um, so maybe I'll give a bit of like a story around like, you know, part of my core values are around, you know, every day I got to learn something new and I got to care about what I do and I got to mm. feel that I've grown. And so part of that learning something new, I will put myself 
in a space where it's not in my day to day and just giving a really good go and immerse myself in the environment. So I had a year where I spent the whole year growing my own vegetable, didn't have to buy it from the shop uh, for a whole year as a gardener, right? And then after that, I went all out as a cake decorator. And I'll be happy to share my Star Wars BB-8, you know, 3D version of a, of a cake. And I went all out for that one. And my latest one is around digital video content. So I've gone all out on that one as well. I took two weeks of leave and I'll just immerse myself into producing video content. So this sounds like an awesome idea, lines up perfectly with my values. Let's give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And um, wow. yeah, I, I think that there's like so much there, like oh, we already want to dive into. Um, but I suppose we can lay out the first question that, um, is on our mind, which relates to the experiment we just posed. And the first question is, um, what is your favorite place or location or like your house, apartment, whatever, your favorite place? And maybe could you just tell us a story about that place? That is a very interesting question in terms of like favorite place. I don't think so much as a place, but actually who I'm with. And any place can be my favorite place as long as I'm surrounded by the people that I care about, right? And so, you know, one of my best memories was actually in South Korea where I spent two weeks with my siblings and their family. So we're all scattered all around the world. And for, you know, we're separated for many years and haven't really seen each other, including my niece and nephew, since they were born. So all of us being able to just meet at a place in, in South Korea made it really special. So it was the memories created with the people that I love, people that I care, that made that into a special place. Fascinating. So with that in mind, I think we can, we can try and explore this experiment. I mean, I, we don't know where we're going, which is the exciting thing as well. So let's imagine that we are in Korea in maybe the, the, a house or wherever that you are staying in. And the first room that we enter is, is the lounge room. And we're getting to know you as a person within the context of your family, the people, you know, the people you interact with. And with that in mind, um, would you be able to tell us a bit about who you are and perhaps something that you've not professed yet on the internet? That's going to be a very hard question, Xavier, because I actually do share quite a lot on, on the internet. So maybe also a bit of introduction because I don't think I've done a, an introduction of myself. So um, my full name is Sweat Kun Lai. I prefer to be called Kun. And that's what I kind of go around in, you know, to kind of introduce myself. And I am from a family of four um, and I'm from Malaysia. I came here to study, um, like many other international students, uh, many, many years ago. And then after that, I had spent time working in Malaysia and in Singapore before coming back to Australia. So I've now been with my organization for over 17 years. But in that 17 years, played a lot of different roles, including audit and then after that into the transformation space. So just your question around experimentation, that is my everyday job. So my role is to reimagine the future and what we need to do today. 
and um, my site work that I do as well is um, I post career-related advice on LinkedIn. Um, and over the last two years, got about 23,000 followers and still is like a, a sharing journey that continued with, with everybody on LinkedIn. So then going back onto the topic, if I'm in that same living room in South Korea um, with the both of you, um, my own nature, like personally, I'll start asking a lot of questions about the both of you. I'm a person who is genuinely like curious about another person and would get them to feel very comfortable to tell me a lot about themselves. So um, it will be very reverse. So instead of both of you asking me questions, I'll be like, hey, Shesh, you know, I heard that you're from like India and Nepal, you know, tell me a little bit about your childhood and I'll keep unpacking and unpacking. Um, and for me, that's a way to build trust, right? The more I know about you as a person and the more you know about me as a person, the more that we're able to build a trusted relationship. So, you know, if you want to go down that path, I'm more than happy to go down that path and pretend that we're in that living room so you can see how it would be like. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating. I mean, I'm pleased to jump in uh, to your professional world. But before that, I, I'd like to stick in this living room that we're in. And uh, similar to what you said, I love to ask questions and make people feel safe in that environment and build trust by, by inviting forth um, a, an opportunity to open up and connect on a human level. And something you said, what was your childhood like? I think that's such a fascinating question because when we're a child, we don't have these filters and these uh, sort of personas. We're just so pure. And uh, that's, you know, people say that's the best times of our lives. So, I mean, I, I would be very curious to know and put that same question to you and uh, invite you to share a little bit about your childhood and, and what your life as a child was. Oh, my life as a child. So, um, is both typical of an Asian um, child, kind of, you know, parents are very focused on my academic achievement. There's a lot of discipline. There is a lot of like, you know, the, the respect for elders. So there's a lot of focus on that. But at the same time, it was also very free and fun because there wasn't a lot of toys, right? And there's no iPad, there's no Legos, there's no like dolls or anything. And we couldn't afford, like, um, I remember one of my neighbors, they have a Barbie doll and I always look at the Barbie doll with envy and we could never afford a Barbie doll. But because of that as well, we had a lot of imagination. You know, mom would ask us, go and fold the clothes, you know, do the laundry. And we made it into a whole laundromat story and pretend that we are running a laundromat and you know we'll delegate all of the pretending to like you know wash the clothes iron the clothes and then fold it um, and my poor younger sister she got the job of actually folding the clothes while the rest of us pretend <laughs> that we're cleaning the clothes so you know things like that or we'll turn our double decker bed into a theater and we'll act it out as a, a theater. We'll put up the blanket up on the double-decker bed. And so it will have the, the curtains and we'll play this game or a couch can be like a circus. We pretended that we were acrobats. So there was this kind of like imagination that we were encouraged 
I think more, not deliberate, just the fact that mom and dad are busy and there wasn't a lot of physical toys and we therefore had to use our imagination. So that's a, a little bit about my childhood. How was it like for you, Shash? Well, I resonate with that so much and I find it so interesting you say that um, you didn't have those Barbie dolls and you had the sort of free play because um, I, as a child, went to a schooling system called the Waldorf Education System. And if you've not heard of that, it's basically a system designed around what you were allowed to do. So the philosophy says that no Barbie dolls, no giving finished products or toys to give children as open things as possible. As in, even in a notebook, we didn't have lines because it was thought to say that that restricts and stops the imagination of the child and no coloring books, no, no such things as that. So I'm do so you, fascinated do, that. Do you get away with writing it going downwards or when it's not in a straight line? I mean, <laughs> I got away with it. They were a very nice liberal school. They often gave us these papers that we would put in the back that had these lines and so they were a little bit supportive uh, but ultimately it was all about free play and like imagining these different worlds and sort of fantasizing about how something a simple object can turn into a world of fantasy and imagination and that really really uh, I think when I look back at it uh, I'm so gra grateful for my mom to do that because I, I see that I'm able to uh, think and imagine of things that go just beyond the regular and that's why sort of we we started this podcast and even though we're business students we we ask questions that just go beyond the world of business and we like to sort of zoom out and think of the bigger picture and I think that's possible only when we have a nurturance and a childhood where we were allowed or given space to be free and imagine and play rather than be restricted in these boxes so I'm very, very fascinated by your story. Thank you so much for sharing. So my question to you is, do you think that um, in the world of children now where they are surrounded by social media and they're surrounded by their iPads, does that enhance the opportunity to be creative or does it narrow down the opportunity to be creative? I'm happy to That's jump in for this if you, if you like, Shasha. I, I, think in the same, I think in the same sense of maybe if you apply a coloring book to this situation, um, when you're providing stimuli to any person, you're providing them a, a pre-imposed structure, a pre-imposed way of conducting themselves. So it's like if there's a video, there's a box, and all you have to do is click a button and all your needs are met, whether that's imaginative needs, creative needs, entertainment. But when there is no iPad or no phone or no coloring book, for example, as Charles would say, although there are benefits, I would, you could argue easily for each of these things. I think when there is nothing there, you're forced to imagine and you're for, forced to create stories and narratives. And Shasha and I have been really interested in this idea of narratives like recently, because it seems like a whole, a whole species in some sense is built upon narratives, like how we conduct ourselves, the way we think about things. It's all in the idea, all through, through the, through the, the frame of reference of stories. And like, similarly, like in your childhood, can you were saying how you created stories, you created ideas that you were in the washing machine and folding clothes. And even though those things don't exist, practically speaking, that, that's how we actually conceive of the world. That's how we conceptualize things. So I would say to, to come back to your question, I would say probably that they do probably 
um, take away creativity in some sense, but you could, I also see the other side as well. Josh, what about you? Yeah, my take on this is, uh, I struggle to answer this question because the philosophy of the schooling system was no technology. I never had a phone, iPad, computer until I was in eighth grade. So I was never exposed to this. And uh, Rudolf Steiner, who's the founder, would say no technology. But I have come to look at technology from a philosophical perspective in a different way, where I believe that technology is how we exteriorize our imagination and our creativity and how we turn our minds inside out. So I've come to the conclusion that technology is not good or bad. I think technology just is. Now, in the context of children, obviously, if parents are going to give their kids who are like maybe four, five, six years old, uh, these iPads that they're always playing with and are stimulated all the time with these highly graphic videos, there's science that proves that that's damaging for the child's imaginations, the child's um, future in terms of how much attention they will be able to have and what their psyche will turn into. So I think there's definitely uh, damage that can be done. But at the same time, I would say there's also a lot of um, goodness that can be brought out if technology was designed for those specific type of people or for that specific age group. Like I finally got an iPad after... 22 years in, and I love it because it's like I can do freely I can play with it I can have no rules or papers I can just move around things and like it does open up my mind and my imagination so I sort of um, go between the two sides and I, I try to see things as just that they just are and we got to decide whether they will serve or not serve given the context as we're, as we're playing around with now and uh, the time as well. If it's a child, then obviously that's, that's something to think about more than when it's like maybe a 22-year-old. So that's my take on it. I think that's, um, so my take on it is like, it's a tool as it mm-hmm. is with anything, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of then how do we, you know, use that tool. You know, mm-hmm. a knife, it can be good, mm-hmm. right? But it can be bad. It's mm. how we use the, the knife. And I do see technology as a matter of like how we use it. You know, I would say to the to my kids, yeah, of course, you can be on the iPad, but these are some ground rules for your safety. And I just want you to stay by by that. So mm. the latest I've heard is an app called Discord. And apparently mm. It's an app that the gamers will use, but the kids mm. are now using it even in for school projects because oh, it's really? just more convenient for them to communicate. Mm. And so I went and checked out um, the the app, the reviews on that, and there are predators on on the app, as would any other open app out there. Mm. Um, but I said to my son, like, I'm not gonna stop you from using it because I think there's benefit for you to collaborate with other people and be creative about it. But these mm. are some ground rules to protect yourself. Mm. And we've got four ground rules. Yeah. But I do think it's an awesome way to be creative. I'm being creative right now, you know, mm. with the use of um, Canva and TikTok and, you know, Clip. <laughs> Clip was awesome. I love all Clip, right? And video editor. Um, so, yes, I, I do think that technology, as it is in our past, would have been considered as technology. Barbie doll would have been considered as a technology at that point in time. And it was just how it was used in terms of stimulating the like creativity. 
With that in mind, Kuhn, this is sort of a question I've been thinking about Hmm. in relation to uh, what rules do we impose or not rules, but how do we best ensure the development of children and kids? Because this is a question that I often think about when I think about when I was a kid, what my parents did. And then there's obviously differences from person to person on how they were raised. And when you have discussions about what you believe or what you do, a lot of it is from your conditioning from what your parents do. And I often think, you know, if I, when I eventually become a dad, um, like what, how do you sort of cultivate a sense of self, a sense of decision-making a sense of being aware of the world, but also not imposing too many rules on them because then that maybe removes their own decision-making capabilities. Like, where is that lying? Do you think with when you're raising, raising kids, but like more specifically, like with people as well, because obviously you're a, a leader of, you know, in PwC, you're leading a lot of people. Like where is that line between imposing restrictions or imposing um, guidance and rules around people, but at the same time, trying to ensure that you're cultivating a sense of a sense of progress or a sense of self-development, a sense of uh, mm. yeah, self-actualization. I think that's a very, very good question, right? And I do find that if I kind of reflect back on my leadership style, it has stemmed quite a lot of, from my parenting style. So one of the things that, you know, when I had my first child, right, I had in my mind my vision of happy. I said with any other organisation, having a vision. So my vision of happy was that when my kids are older and as adults, they want to be with me. I had a vision of us sitting together on the couch, just watching TV together, right? But the reason why they're sitting on the couch together as adults, that was a vision of happy for me is because that means they've made a choice to be with me, not because I say you have to come home. That means our relationship are so deep and trusted and safe that they on their own want to be with me, right? And if I flip that back then on organization is how do you make your team feel that they want to work with you, right? And if they want to work with you, that's a really you know, good sign that you're doing something right as a leader. If they feel inside that they want to be with you right then I from that vision then translate to what does that mean from a value point of view right and from a value point of view as a family is around the contribution and working together as a family right not one is better than the other is like you know how do you as an individual contribute to the family So everyone has a role to play, right? But then to work together, to be kind to each other, you know, to be independent. And then when it comes to your responsibility, you have accountability towards your responsibility. And and that's the kind of value that the boys have because this would then support them to be an independent, loving and kind adult in the future. They had a lot of love you know, for their families and the society around them. Then every day, every step, you know, lines up to that vision and that value. 
if you flip that back on organization as well, right? A really strong organization is an organization that is, you know, very focused on values, you know, good values, because this is something someone said to me, right? The standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. And if you've got an organization that is so strong in their values, even when no one is watching, they will still do the right thing. And that's the same with kids, right? When I'm not there, when the dad is not there, what choices will they make? And, and that's the piece around like the values to help them make those choices. And that's how I kind of see it like for children is that it's not about telling them what to do, but it's actually in like kind of incorporating values into their life. So that will be the guiding, that compass that to lead their life. That's so fascinating, Kuhn. I love the juxtaposition that you made between family and an organization. And since you've made this juxtaposition, I'd like to start walking towards or flying towards uh, PwC's office in Australia and uh, think of the environment and the context shifting from your living room in uh, South Korea to, to a, uh, the company in, in, in Australia. Now, it's fascinating how you compared a leader in an organization such as PwC that you work in to a family as in a parent that sort of nurtures the family and raises the family. And then you brought up these notions of values being the core of any, any tribe, I would say, instead of saying family versus organization. Ultimately, it's a group of people that create a tribe. And so you spoke about how uh, ultimately the leader or the parent creates a space where children or employees or people ultimately feel safe in that space. And when they feel safe and they feel like they want to be in this space, they feel like they want to contribute and, and uh, thrive together, right? That's the ultimate sort of uh, goal or the, the purpose of a tribe is to contribute to each other's lives, to communicate, to collaborate, and, and together have values that drive integrity as you brought up to do the right thing when even no one is watching. So what fascinates me and why I'm having an experience right now is because you're violating my expectation and my own conditioning. Because when I think about a big accounting firm like PwC, I don't think of an organ, a leader in that organization that um, thinks or of themselves as a parent in that organization and thinks about creating a safe space and nurturing them as their own children and making them feel uh, that, that they want to work here. I, I had a conception in my own mind from my own past and conditioning, which I'm hoping to change now by conversing with you of why, why organizations are the way they are or the, or the conception I had as in like, it's a very competitive environment and people go there just to make a lot of money and climb a ladder and compete and, and just get over each other. Whereas what you're saying sounds like it's, it's such a nurturing space. And I've never seen a huge organization as a nurturing space. So I'm curious to know where you came to this conclusion from and, and how does that, how now your office or your, uh, your, your company looks like in terms of its culture and, and the style that you bring about in there. So 
just because we're nurturing doesn't mean we don't have high expectation, right? Our parents are nurturing, but they sure have very high expectation on us because they believe in our ability and our potential. That's why they have that high expectation. And then they see themselves as like, how do we support the high performance, right? And, and that's the same with organization. Absolutely, you should have a high performance culture, right? But then, like you say, is how do you have a high performance culture without it being toxic and without it being competitive, without it being like docky dock? And that comes back to values. So I'll share the five PwC values, right? And one of those core values is actually care, right? It's actually care. And our performance is also based on the values that we demonstrate in the organization. How do you care for your client? How do you care for your team? How do you care for your leader? How do you care you know, for society? It's actually a core value to care. And then about working together as well. You know, a high-performing organization, it's not about, you know, the top dog. Like the strength of the team is actually on the weakest in the team, right? How strong you are as a team lies with who is the weakest in your team. And if you can get even the weakest in your team to be a high-performing individual, then as a collective, you are just that much stronger, right? And then there's also around integrity doing the right thing, even when no one is watching. Then around reimagining the possible, organizations need to constantly transform themselves. They need to keep up, you know, with the changing condition. And keeping up will keep up. But if you want to stay ahead, you got to do more than that, right? And so you wanted that balance between high performance, but polished by values or centered by values. So you get a different, you know, kind of message throughout the organization. And then you hit it at every level of the organization. Everybody has responsibility around values. Everyone has accountability around values, right? And it's the same as in the family as well. If you know what is your core family values, you know when you deviate from it, there will be consequences. But you know if you stay true to the core values of your family, you feel that safe environment. Absolutely. And I have, I have a challenge to the idea of values. And this is something we discussed in the workshop that we did together um, a few months ago when we were discussing corporate culture. And this idea of values and having values in an organization and having those employees or maybe a family uh, embodying those values is a very, very difficult thing to do. Perhaps when you contrast a family with an organization of, you know, 500 plus people, when you look at their family, if someone is being incoherent in terms of following the values, it's very easy to say, okay, wait, what's going on? This, you know. Whereas when you have a very large organization, particularly a, a multinational organization, there must be instances all over the world that it's because given the sheer scale of the organization, it is so hard to keep account of everything. And so hard to keep account of the scale and maybe the things that are going on. 
So with that in mind, couldn't one argue that obviously values are important, but they are not going to be followed just given the scale of an organization? I think you, they are always going to be people who are not going to share the same values. Like we cannot expect, you know, thousands and thousands of individuals to have all exactly the same values. But you're also picking on values that are kind of almost universal, right? Nobody ever goes around and say, I'm not a kind person. And even an evil person will say that they're a good person, right? I don't know if you've, I, there was a story that went around, like, you know, even your most evil criminal will never say that I've done something evil. Think of all the superhero movies, right? Even the, the, the evil character in the superhero movie would say, I'm doing this for the greater good. You know, I'm, I'm you know, killing off Earth so that we can rejuvenate and start all over again, right? And, and so there's, there's almost like this kind of universal values. Now, there are going to be certain values like what I was saying about reimagining the possible. Not everyone is going to share that value. For some individual, doing the same thing every day gives them the safe space to do the same thing every day, right? And, and, and that's when like, you know, they might feel a bit of a rub when values are misaligned. So people will tend to go and find their tribe. Their tribe is a place where they feel that they share that same common value, right? So you just think of any organization, people move around, you know, because there's some things that are not aligned and that's okay. I think that's the main thing is like, you know, when people move around, I have teams that move and teams joining and that's actually okay because everyone will have different values everyone will have different priorities at a particular point in time and that's actually okay but for an organization with its own vision having that kind of shared values help the organization move forward So it's very interesting the way you put this and I completely agree with the scale and size of an organization. We cannot expect everyone to have exactly same values, right? That would be a little bit ridiculous to think about. Yet you pose the need for a degree of shared values, which I think we can come to as human beings, right? That share a similar reality. But my challenge to that is that I've worked in a few corporate organizations as a, a facilitator and like working with teams and seeing how dynamics go. And something I've noticed is that values are these poster values, as in like there are these posters or quotes on the wall or that these are our values that are derived from the top down, are derived from the leaders at the top who maybe found the company or who are, are on the top of the hierarchy that bring about these values and expect the entire organization to follow them. And these are just things that people, maybe they need to memorize it and uh, have on top of their fingertips. But in reality, they don't actually, maybe again, my assumption, but they don't actually even mean what they, uh, what that, that those values mean. They don't live by those values. And they, perhaps they have a different way of looking at these values, or perhaps they come from a different place, as in why are they a part of this organization? Their purpose might not be aligned with the purpose of this organization. 
oftentimes I see in organizations, people don't even talk about the purpose or the mission or why are we doing what we're doing? That's sort of like, what a ridiculous question. Uh, I mean, we're obviously here to make money and let's do everything we can to do so. So I like the notion of values, but I am a little bit apprehensive because sometimes they feel like it's just a way to polish it or show it to the employees, but in reality, it may not work. Again, this is just my condition and my challenge. And I'm curious to know, what is your take on this, uh, this challenge? And you should absolutely be right. So we've just like introduced like three critical behavior. And one of those critical behavior is actually realism. Let's get real, you know, in terms of what is possible and what is actually not going to be possible, not going to be reality of it, right? And, and that's going to be the same when it comes to like values. Like for me, values is important as an individual that's something that's important to me and and that's something that I would share with all the people around me around the focus on values right I can't speak the same that another person is going to be exactly the same as me because maybe for them like you say it's more about you know what's the next dollar right and then but for another person it's going to be around Actually, I'm just, I just want to make a social impact. I just want to make a difference to the society. That's my main thing, right? And we, we shouldn't like kind of, you know, kind of expect that everyone would have the exact same values, but there should be this kind of strive for a shared value. And these are the kind of stuff, right? Like it doesn't happen overnight either. It happened over, oh, must be we are on this journey now. This is like our sixth or eighth year on having a common vision right across the globe and having a shared value right across the globe. And look, I've got my notebook here. I'm not going to show you what's inside my notebook itself, but, you know, the cover. Oh, can you see? Oh, you can't. Ah, what do you kind doing? of. Uh, barely. <laughs> Can you see that? Yes, a little bit. Right. Every notebook, every notebook has to remind us of our values, and then every every performance feedback has a piece where they actually ask about values. So it's all about nudging the behavior rather than forcing the behavior. And if you think of like back onto that parent thing, right? Even if you're in the same family and you're supposed to have grown up in the same values, not every child will grow up exactly the same. Not every child will. And, and some will kind of deviate and have a very different values or go on different paths. And for us to be okay with that. So just continuing on that point, I definitely hear how it's a long-term, a, a long-term goal as, a, as opposed to an action point that gets actioned and then everyone starts doing it. It's a, it's a journey, so to speak. So like in the terms of our podcast, how we would, how we would uh, illustrate that is that we're on a boat and we're sailing towards an island and we may never get to that island specifically, but every time we're going forward, we're to going two steps forward. And even if, even if the island goes two steps back, we're still itching and going towards that point. Um, with that in mind, this 
I wanted to make a comment as well because there's organizations like Amazon, for example, mm-hmm. where they have their 14 leadership principles. And obviously there's a sense that the organization, whoever is at the top has a very important role in enforcing those values down the, down the hierarchy. And that gets enforced throughout the culture. What do you think like given like that as an example of an organization, like how does it, how do you evaluate the effectiveness of values being rolled out into an organization? Because it seems like a very tricky thing for, you know, to try and get values, you create them, you, you spread them, but then to actually make sure that employees are actually carrying that in their behavior. Like, how is that? That's a question I sort of struggle to, to distinguish organizations like between. So um, one story that was told to me, was how a CEO would get into a lift and when she's in the lift, she would actually ask, hey, you know, what's, what, what's our values, right? And for her, the moment the team knows at all different levels of the organization, know what those like values are, she knows that they're on the right track. And for them to know that the CEO will ask the question is a signal that this is important, right? And, and you think about that signaling of behavior and values, right? That, that's what's at play here. So if organization were to just roll it out and then expect it like, right, you know, transform the whole organization, it's not going to work because like where's the signaling on everyday behavior in terms of like what will get recognized and what will get rewarded. And of course their organization, and I would say even mine included probably, you know, there are values and yet the signaling of the rewarding of behavior that are not aligned to values, sometimes it could happen, right? Where it wasn't the right signal. And people then kind of go, right, I don't have to care about the values because I'm not getting the signal that the values matter. So as leaders, we really got to think about those behavior signaling and what are we saying to the team around the behavior that we are expecting. But be okay that we cannot expect human beings to be perfect, right? And we're not expecting perfection here. And there need to be room to kind of move as well because it's an encouragement towards something, not penalizing somebody for not having that same behavior. Yeah, but it it all comes down to me, like how I'm sort of conceptualizing this is that it it also has a very big, leadership styles have a very, very big role to play in this. And there was a question I was very interested to ask earlier, but I think this ties in more nicely now, which is around certain notions of leadership. Mm. And if we, if we are to think of the modern day leadership model or what, what a leader looks like, I think there's very male dominated perspectives, like very male dominated. If you look Mm. at the boards of most companies, there is mostly men. um, And if you look at the senior executives, it's mostly men. And although that is starting Mm. to shift now, um, there's a really interesting cultural imp- uh, implication, and that implication being is that there's very subtle, there's very subtle culture that is perpetuated mm. 
through through the simple notion that if a, if there's a lot of types of people that are in a, per, a particular room or in a company, it's going to perpetuate those sorts of cultures or those sorts of behaviors, right? And something I've been toying with recently through very much smaller scale, you know, much smaller scale um, uh, problems is that there's no narratives around what, or not no narratives rather, but there's not as many narratives of what a good leader is, as opposed to maybe you could think like, I mean, like, for example, the, like the, I guess the, the hyperbolic or the hyperbole example is like a Gordon Ramsay type where you have this really angry guy that's shouting at everyone. Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? So that's maybe obviously an exaggeration, but there's that on the other extreme. And then on the Mm -hmm. other side of the scale, you can say there's, there's a much uh, more matriarchal figure that does things in a slightly different way, but in the middle, there doesn't seem to be a story or there's not as many stories about what a good leader looks like. And I've, uh, I've been asking my friends about this, um, you know, but just being like, you know, how, how do you manage people? Because it seems to be like, there's only that one narrative, but it, I also hear from you, what you were saying before you even said something along the lines, how do people feel about your leadership? Like what do people feel about you as a person? And I think that is a very drastic, um, a very drastic change to maybe before which is, you know, it doesn't really matter what anyone feels. We just need to get the job done. We just need to meet the bottom line. But I mean, I, 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 would, I would agree more with your perspective, but I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on that sort of whole spiel in general about narratives and leadership styles. And, and you're right, right? Like if you ask anybody on the street right now and say, you know, draw out what a leader looks like. Yeah. It will look a male person, you know, um, and probably Anglo person uh, with a particular kind of like a much more, you know, stronger kind of, you know, big voice kind of like, you know, personality type, you know, we're alpha type, right? And and that is that perception of leader, like the, the how they should look like. And so anybody else that don't fit into the look like straight away um, your starting point is already you know at a much much lower level and you just have to climb that few more steps up now that's not to say that therefore it's automatically assumed that you know um, that's the case for every single white male out there it's just that the perception of what is a leader right I've gone into rooms where I walk next to my more junior team member and you know they will look to him and take direction from him instead of to me and talking to me given that actually I'm the one with the remit to make some of those decisions right not him but you know that is that kind of um, I suppose like for a long time we are in a society that has a perception of leader now that's not to say that that will be forever because there is a changing narrative i just don't think we are quite there yet as you rightly alluded to of like what does new leadership look like but there is movement you know whether that's from simon sinek or whether that's from Brene brown where they really talk about 
you know, the why and having the courage to be vulnerable, you know, and the feeling that you bring in another person, right? There is that changing narrative. And, you know, and even each generation now are expecting a different leadership style. And so for any organization or anybody aspiring to be a leader, they need to take that into account because the people that they would like to lead are expecting something quite different now. And if they're not able to, I, that dream of being a leader is really going to be quite elusive, right? And, you know, I've got a quote that, so being a leader is not how many people you lead, but it's how many people you can lift. Right. So it goes back to the whole notion of like being a servant leader, right? What are you doing for others? And it's not like not doing their job for them, but actually how do you guide them to enhance their capability, you know, help grow their potential? And, and that's that kind of like that change, right, of the old style of leadership to the new style of leadership. There is that expectation now that as a leader, it's also that your, you know, service to the community, the service to others. So yes, for anybody out there looking to be a leader, really got to start thinking about that. It's very interesting what you just brought up, Kuhn. And I want to speak a little bit more about notions of servant leadership because I have studied this. You brought up Simon Sinek. I read his book, Leaders Eat Last, and I'm very fascinated by that. And before that, I did a course on experiential education and leadership, which also spoke about notions of being the leader that's lesser known or that's hardly known and having these meta perspectives or philosophies such as Taoism inculcated into the form of leadership. I'm very, very interested in Taoist philosophy and how it can be applied, not just to our parenting, our education, but leadership and organizations. And I, I really am fascinated by the notion you put that we must be servant leaders. But I would question that again, because my understanding of servant leadership is sort of flipping the hierarchy or in Taoist ways, it would be that you become the ocean that is under the, the rivers. And because it is under the rivers, that's why uh, the rivers come into the ocean, because there is humility. But with the culture that we have had, the patriarchal sort of dominator culture, where there's a stark hierarchy, where there are leaders on top, and sure, the leaders on top can say that, oh, I'm a servant leader. When we say that we're, we're trying to lift people up, there's automatically a notion that I'm above you rather than below you. And to me, my conception of servant leadership that I'm not actually above you, I'm here below you and I'm under you and I'm not going to help you or lift you because um, I am above you, but perhaps I might serve you because I am under you and I'm here to do service. But these narratives... I feel like are getting lost and sort of uh, construed in thinking of it in new ways. So it seems like we're moving from a culture of this dominator hierarchical culture to this more servant leader culture, but it's, it seems like we're ne in, neither in the dominator place, neither in the servant leader place, we're some place in the middle. And I don't know what's your take on that, but 
I feel a little bit of tension to think that servant leaders are those who lift people or and ultimately servant leaders are those that are on top that are calling themselves servants, but in the power dynamics, in the hierarchical dynamics, they're still at top. And I'm fascinated by notions of decentralizing power and opening up organizations where we don't have these stark hierarchies, but perhaps new ways. And I'm curious to know how you look at these new ways or where you stand with this notion of servant leadership. That's a really good question around, you know, what you're alluding to is almost like this nuanced leadership, right? Um, instead of being binary about one or the other, you know, actually is the nuance and there's that contextualization of the situation, right? And there are going to be moments and times where you actually do need to take charge. You do need to like push through. And, but at the same time, there are going to be contexts where actually you need to flex and think about more about, you know, as your role as a rope, like the blocker remover so that you can help your team progress and move forward. But then there might be a different context where actually you're not trying to be the blocker remover. Your role is actually to impart that knowledge to them so that they can then self-help or self-progress. That you could get even more the other extreme where the situation does require to roll up your sleeve as, as a leader, roll up your sleeve and get your hands dirty and do. Do the, like what the rest of your team are doing. So perhaps it's more around the ability to be more nuanced in the leadership style. Um, and as one person have shared with me, it's around how good are you at flexing your leadership style to bring out the best in others rather than having to be so binary about one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with you on sort of banishing the binary and being in the space in between. And uh, that being said, this, we're speaking about a nuanced type of leadership I'm curious to step back a little bit and, and to look at the bigger picture and to ask you about the future of organizations and leadership. Right now, we're in a, a society where narratives of working for big corporations with thousands and thousands of people um, is, is sort of fantasized. And that's the narrative we're conditioned with, including me and Xavier. I am studying consulting, Xavier studying finance. And, you know, we go to these bus elite business schools that are trying to push this narrative. But as we are questioning as street philosophers, these narratives, I'm wondering about where you stand in terms of the future of organizations and the future of organizations in the context of business. And I'd like to put out a thought and to be curious to hear your uh, response to it. So I watched uh, Silicon Valley investor Naval Ravikant speak about how the future of business will be quite different, where he imagines that we're going to go into a de-industrialized revolution with the information technology that's rising and reverse the industrial revolution and the centralization of power, where we're ultimately go back to the hunter-gatherer type of uh, systems where we didn't work for someone, but we were working for ourselves. And we are free to work for ourselves at our own terms based on what we love doing. 
And he says that now there are things such as the gig economy and atomization of the firms and firms are becoming smaller and smaller so that they're coming uh, to a place where people can be more free and not just perform well, but also feel well, where people are not competing against each other, but really having meaningful relationships with each other and having empathy for each other because they're working in smaller tribes rather than huge organizations that are based upon hierarchies that need to sort of climb up, that we need to climb up. So the narratives are shifting from this hierarchical, large organizational sort of industrial centralization of power narrative to sort of this decentralized using technology and information to, to be more free, a gig economy and, and have more teams and love more uh, work with people who you love and have more freedom in terms of location and whatnot uh, as the new narrative. And I'm curious to know where you see yourself on that narrative or where you think the future of uh, business and organizations is going. This is the one where I'll take your counsel on being okay with not saying anything, you know, and I don't have a magic crystal ball in front of me to kind of see what the future is going to be. Mm. But I know this right now is that, yes, from a democratization of you know power, that's really happening, whether organization want it or not, whether our political system want it or not. Mm. You know, I was I was in a panel before where I say to all the young people there, know that now you have a voice and you can project that voice to the whole world at your fingertips. Right, something that when I was growing up, it was impossible. You would never have a voice. But every single young person out there, every single person now have a voice. The question then becomes is how will you use that voice? And for organization to work through, how will they flex themselves into a space where they no longer hold all of that power? They are still gonna be, the reality of it is a few organizations that holds the power um, and they're doing it very, very actively with or without us wanting to be part of it. So there's definitely gonna be a few key player where that power still gonna sit with them. And I still see that in, in the near future, but you will have other organization that will start to reimagine how will they then use that democratization of power for their own organization survival, but also to stay ahead of the game. And I'll have an example for myself, right? Like I could follow the organization channel for a voice, or I could just go out on my own on LinkedIn and just use LinkedIn to to have a voice and I don't need a permission to do that. There are rules and guidance that I probably have to make sure I don't cross the line, but it doesn't stop me from having a voice and changing the narrative of issues that I think is important. Would that create a different opportunity? Yes, it probably will create a different opportunity. Um, do we know how it's gonna look like yet? We don't. And I think we're also trying to work through what does that really, really mean? But 
for every generation, new generation coming up, it, it is going to be a different world. You don't have to follow the traditional path anymore of going to a particular school, going to a particular uni, therefore going to a particular organization and then have a particular type of career. It's completely different now. And even myself saying it to my son, I say, you don't have to, you know, use all these different apps, find your own voice, find your own space and, and work it out. You don't have to wait. You can do it now. So with that in mind, it seems like we're, so what we, where we've just been in terms of the room, we, we started off in, in this place in Korea, then we've shifted, took a plane to the offices of PwC. And I think with the last question, we were slowly descending out into space. And this is another place we really want to explore because there's this idea that Shashwat talks about called the astronaut's overview effect, which is when you're viewing something from space or when astronauts, they um, leave earth and they go into space and they're flying on the space station or, or they're looking back at earth, earth from the moon. They have this very weird philosophical um, inner transformation, which is they realize that there's a lot of things that we will worry about on the day to day that actually don't matter. You know, whether that comes to like discriminatory, um, you know, people discriminating against race or whether it comes to people worrying about money. There's a lot of things that like in the whole scheme of things, in the whole scheme of the universe or what Spinoza would say, the cosmic perspective don't really, you know, these things that people stress about don't really matter. Like, And so with that in mind, we wanted to start zooming in from space into earth on more bigger ideas like toxic cultures. And you mentioned the word toxic before. And I think in organizations and even, even outside in families, even there's, if there's uh, uh, there's, uh, there can be toxic cultures that are formed. And I, there's something that I'm not too sure if I would label as toxic. I'm apprehensive to do that, but something that I've, I've gotten a big sense from as a, as a graduate, um, as a, as a student at university and Shashwood's felt this as well. And a lot of my friends as well have felt this, which is if you apply for when you, you know, if you're particularly in business or if you're like a science student or whatever, you usually apply for the biggest organizations because they're in some sense a validation of your, your worth as a person, because it's like, if you make, if you get a grad role at these jobs, or if you get a position at these big companies that validates your intrinsic value as a person, because you've made it, you've gotten there. Right. And this is definitely a pressure that my friends and I have felt on Shashwat's felt. And I wanted to ask about this question about pursuing, pursuing companies and climbing the corporate hierarchy and get your perspective on why people do this. And maybe, in, maybe feel free to share an experience of other people or even yourself about why people pursue, uh, pursue larger organizations and choose to climb the hierarchy. Cause I mean, even when it comes to things like going to university or choosing to do a particular thing, sometimes people don't have a good answer because maybe it's just the condition they've lived in and they've chosen to do those actions just because it's the condition and there's no judgment on that. Um, but I think it's important to ask, beg, beg the question, ask the question, why is this the case? And so I would like to hear what, is your, what are your thoughts on people on just pursuing large corporations and climbing hierarchy and all that? It's interesting you ask me that question in the context of like, we're now in space because if we're now in space, um, 
the choices that we make around which university or which corporate jobs we go for within in the context of being in space we're not you know and in the context of if you look over your career may not even matter that much um but you know so let's 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 go back to them that that question that you got around that social conditioning um and i'll rather share my own personal story around the social conditioning right so my parents were the generation after the war and at that point in time going to a university would have been you know the few in the whole country that would have had the opportunity to go into university so going to a university a family member going to a university would have been a big milestone um because it proved or validate you know um academic slash intellectual you know competence right and and it will signal therefore you would get a better employment opportunity and also um success in life because there were just so few and and that was probably a period where they were coming out where it was um less and less about farming less and less about you know um manufacturing where it was the start of the whole like kind of like office working environment right then came my generation so in in my generation it was still um yeah it wasn't enough just to be now not wasn't enough just to go in to have a degree right now, because now there's a lot more people with degree so then you know for parents kind of thinking about a better future for their children and in a society where there isn't as much in terms of like social security you have to rely on yourself if not your family members to you know put food on the table and as a parent you'll be thinking right to ensure that my child is going to be able to put food on the table for my grandkids i now got to make sure that they go to the top school and and then hopefully means that you know to the largest organization because there's a perception therefore you'd be paid better and you're then set for life right um but now me as a parent and i and i look at my kids and the undergrads and then there is that realization that you don't the power is not all with organization now to create a successful life i think because now there is that maturity in society especially in australia and some of the other countries around what does success mean and a lot more rounded because we're not at the kind of survival mode anymore you know everyone has actually a pretty high standard of living and and that's when other things now become important family you know well-being um you know health and all this other stuff that just becomes or experience you know because we're not worried about being hungry if we're still in a society where we are worried about being hungry i don't think we'll be having this kind of conversation this is a conversation of privilege right this is a conversation of privilege to be even having this conversation is a reflection on a very different standard of living and just to cut in voice. yeah of course and just to cut in kun even thinking about 
even thinking about our future prospects, even that in and of itself is a privilege because there's people that are struggling that they don't even have the opportunity to think one day ahead because they have to figure out how to survive today. Correct. Right. And, and on whether you go to big organization or not, we have a choice to create a successful life because we have a social security blanket. We have a family blanket, right? It's a choice. So I think, you know, in that context where we have that choice, then yes, your how you see yourself for the future doesn't need to be dictated that way anymore. But for other um that might be a way of social mobility, of social security. And I don't think you're ever going to find a right and a wrong. Um, if you happen to have that privilege of a choice, the question becomes, what would you do with that privilege for others that didn't have that privilege? Wow, Kroon. So I was looking and watching the story that you were describing, being an astronaut in space and seeing how our planet is sort of evolving. And I could see a progression of our econ economic value that we're generating, where you started off describing how we were having these agrarian economies and sort of even before that, maybe hunter-gatherer tribes, sort of just having this... in. Um, farmer type value and just producing commodities or extracting commodities from nature to then moving towards making goods out of it and sort of the industrial revolution and uh, industrializing that process to create as much goods as possible to then moving towards where you are right now as in the service industry and not just making goods but delivering services which is a sort of meta business model right it's not just creating stuff but now you're helping people create stuff from a new perspective from a meta perspective and then you spoke about experiences and ultimately um, there's a harvard business review article that speaks about being in an experience economy where we're going from creating and delivering services to staging experiences. And given the information age that we're moving into and this whole sort of global village notion that the earth is now one and it's all interconnected, we are going through more and more experiences moving forward. So that goes back to my little topic around leadership, right? Is the feeling uh -huh. that you bring in others, right? It links back to that experience, right? And so you really want to think about what is the feeling that I'm invoking in another person? What is their experience um, when they're interacting with me or they're interacting with my organization? Right? Because yes, absolutely, I agree with you, Shasma. It's it is that feeling and experience now, and that's really intangible. Wow. And Kun, I'd just like to say I am right now having that experience because you have completely violated my expectations. I never expected uh, perhaps a person who works in a big firm like PwC to be talking about a leadership style that is nurturing and comparing that to families and comparing that to parenting and speaking about people like Brené Brown or Simon Sinek who bring about these notions of creating experiences for people and ultimately creating spaces where people can thrive. I mean, right now, I feel a lot looking at how you have sort of changed my mind of looking at the world we live in today and how it brings me hope that 
um, corporations, big corporations can ultimately transform society. And there are people within these organizations that look at the world in different ways and are transforming and evolving with the world and who don't want to just hold on to power and move with the traditional sort of leadership style. But there is a shift in this. So all that being said, given that we're in space looking at the planet from a distance, I'm wondering from your unique experiences and perspectives, where do you see our planet moving into the future? Where, what is the future of our society? I would want the future of society to be one that is kinder. That's, that's as simple as that, just to be kinder, you know, where we start in a society that is about giving rather than asking and taking. Because I think if we've got a society that as a starting point is about giving, you know, you just see a, such a different world, right? Um, right now, I just see that we have more takers than we have givers. And, and yet, if we just have a, just that bit more of givers in the world, it will be a very, very different future that we would have. So that's my hope. Um, my aspiration um, and I can only ever do that by role modeling it myself right it's about how much I'm willing to give and be generous with giving because then we'll start to see change and as you guys are doing as well right you are giving you're giving to the world you're making time on top of your uni on top of like trying to find a job putting food on the table you are creating content because you're finding insights and wisdoms from the world and giving back to society. You're not gonna get anything for a long while, but you're doing this to give because you want to change the narrative. So encourage people to give because by giving, we will see the world that we want to live in. Wow. Kun, I love this notion of giving and um, I'm studying a certain type of philosophy that speaks about giving from the heart and not giving from a place of guilt, fear, shame uh, or, or for uh, giving to get something back, a means to an end, but giving just to purely give like unconditional love, like a mother, right? Going back to your living room, like a mother who gives unconditionally to her child rather than, oh, I'm going to extract value out of this. And I love that. But again, my realistic side comes in and questions that because given the culture that we have today, the capitalistic dominator culture that we're living through and the notion of money that we have, that we are doing things to earn money and we do things so that we can become rich or we can, uh, we will give so that we can get. Given the systems, the capitalistic structures that we have in place, do you actually think that we can live in this sort of utopia where we can all just give to others and, and be all happy together, uh, happy uh, ever after together? No. It, happily ever after does not um, line up to human behavior, right? Like the nature of human. And that's why we're always in the situation that we're in. You know, um, hence why you got things around like that. What is it? The Christian one, seven, seven sins. It's, it's, it's part and parcel of it. I think it's more that it's getting better. Not utopia, not perfect. Um, 
as human beings, we are not perfect. And we can aspire for utopia, but realism, like you, Shes, tells me that it's not realistic, but it's about getting better. And if today can be better than yesterday, and tomorrow can be better than today, that's good enough. And like I say, it's the small incremental action that will lead to the exponential growth over the long term. Fantastic. And I think that's a perfect place to, to come back down to earth. But just before we do that, we wanted to ask you the final question. So let's just, let's just assume we're in the space shuttle and we can choose to come back to earth anytime. But before that, we have to think, what type of Earth do we want to return to? What does Earth need to look like for us to come back? Because space is great. We can be by ourselves, read all the books, do whatever we want in space. But we will return to Earth if X, Y, Z happens. And going back to utopia, our conception of utopia is that it's not maybe perfect, but it is a horizon that we're constantly going towards. It is something that is always changing and always updating. And with that in mind, we wanted to ask you, what does your utopia look like? And feel free to be as optimistic or pessimistic as you like. And, and just outline the conditions for your arrival back to Earth. <laughs> oh, gosh. What would my utopia look like? So, I think I was alluding it earlier on that, you know, my way of leading life is more about the small incremental action that is realistic, that is possible, you know, that is not overly hard and it's simple. Um, and I, it is those things for as long as I'm still able to do the small little things that will make a difference. That's enough for me. And it's not a big massive transformational um so even like right now right you know for some the life that we have will be considered by others as utopia right for some you know living the life that we live would have been considered as utopia and if that's the case um are we not then content or should be content or will our utopia then be around how do we create this utopia for also somebody else so for me it is about the ability to still make a difference but to still be okay to fail and to make mistakes and to be imperfect and live in an imperfect world and lead and you know maybe work in an imperfect organization that's okay <laughs> wasn't quite like the big answer but you know for me it's always the small things that matters and that counts I, I absolutely love that and it relates to and it relates to an idea a book called black box thinking which talks about how marginal gains lead uh, to lead to very big outcomes and you can apply it to everything. So despite it not sounding very grandiose or very huge, it has an actual, a huge impact, you know? And so with that being said, 
we covered a lot of topics today. We covered, we went into a different rooms. We went on a journey, so to speak, which I think was very, very fun. And we'd like to thank you so much for coming to have this conversation with us. It was an absolute pleasure. And we just wanted to ask if you had any final comments for our listeners or if you had anything to any plugs or anything you wanted to mention. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity to do a plug and I, I will take that opportunity. Um, as I kind of alluded to in the, in the beginning of my introduction around, you know, I do provide career related advice on LinkedIn under the hashtag career hack with Kim. Um, and that's part of my, my way of giving back and the small incremental action that I hope will create this you know, significant difference to the life of many, many thousands out in the community. So everyday small actions to exponential growth. Thank you so much, Kun. We really appreciate that. And we hope because this is a community that you can come on, come on in the future. If, you, if you're interested to talk about these ideas or even different ideas and discuss any burning questions or passions or even to challenge us young university students that are keep asking questions. <laughs> um, we'll we'll like have a session on. around like chess realism, the topic on realism. Mm. Chess. Uh, th- yes. <laughs> what, about you, what about you? What do you say, Shash? Yeah, I, I, I am completely for that. I consider myself to be an idealist and I talk about like the perfect world or maybe not perfect, but like more idealistic. But as you saw Kun today, I was moving towards a little bit more uh, realistic or like, is that actually possible? And I'm, explore, I'm, I'm keen and uh, curious to explore the dimension and the realms that come about in those, between those two spaces, beyond the binary, where we're neither pessimistic or realistic, nor completely optimistic or uh, idealistic, right? Where we can be in a space in between. And uh, I'll throw a last uh, metaphor that you might find interesting in terms of thinking about realism and idealism, where you can think of all of us as in our journey in a car. And essentially being in a car, the accelerator is the idealistic part where we're just pushing forward and striving towards a better world, a perfect world, a utopia. And on the other hand, we have the break, which is more of the pessimistic side or the realistic side. And that sort of slows down the car. And if we were to ask, well, do we go towards idealistic or pessimistic? I think the car can speak for itself, where if there was a car without a brake, well, the car would crash very quickly. And if the car had only, um, uh, only a brake and no accelerator, well, the car would just be stuck. So questions of how can we find a balance between these binaries and these dualities that we have in society, these polarized views, and be in the space in between is something that me and Xavier both are very passionate about and we're hoping to build a community around having such discussions and we'd love to continue having you and build a relationship where we can feel different things and care for each other and talk about things that ultimately impact the world in positive ways and uh, encourage people to give back as you said so I feel extremely grateful for having this opportunity to speak to you and for you to play along with our journey and our game and our experiment. I think uh, it has been a fantastic uh, journey that we took from your living room up to space and then back uh, into wherever on this planet Utopia we are in, in now. So Utopia is now. And yeah, just thank you so much, Kun. 
You're welcome. And I say this last thing is if you are the driver of the car, then be a realist optimist. If you've made it to the end of the video or the podcast, we would like to thank you so much for taking your time to listen or even watch our videos. As a part of a new section of our podcast, and that section being to ask all of you some questions, to get you to reflect or even to come up with some things that you're passionate about. And some of those questions are as follows. So to begin, how can the things you learn from family and being at home be applied to the professional context? How do you think corporations can create a culture that empowers people to take action and drive process? Progress, rather. (laughs) And what is your definition of leadership? What is the future of corporations according to you? And do you think companies will become smaller and decentralize their power? Would you like to work for a big corporation like PwC? Why and why not? And ultimately, as we ask all of our guests, and as we would love to ask you, what does your utopia look like? Feel free to share what you write and what you think with us, whether that is in the comment section of YouTube or whether that is in our messages on LinkedIn, on Instagram or Twitter. You can also find us in all those social media links if you'd like to start a discussion. We would eventually love to have all of you on our podcast to discuss anything that you're passionate about or something that you find interesting to drive conversation together and grow together. And as always, Utopia is now, so let's find the others and become wiser together.